Second Kings marks uh, the end of the monarchy in Israel. We'll also, Lord willing, look at First and Second Chronicles. But nonetheless, we see in the book of Second Kings the really the the final chaotic and unfortunate end to the nation of Israel uh, as Judah is taken off into exile. Begun in the year 1050, 1050 before Christ, of course. We see here really the final stays, as it were, of the nation of Israel. Absolutely instructive to us as God's people. We take up redemption's progress here, as has been our plan through uh, the Bible to this point. The golden thread of God's activity is certainly here in the book of Second Kings as well. The continuation of the Word of God is proclaimed through His prophets. Elisha, certainly one who spoke the words of God, seen as the Word spoken by the Lord. We see here also the utterly foolish and hell-delivering depravity of mankind as he takes to himself the breathtaking arrogance of rejecting the Word of God, the ways of God, and the people of God. Alongside the mercy-soaked, covenant-keeping God who heals and redeems people of His own choosing. And so we see that right here in the book of Second Kings. And so let's look here at this book beginning in what was heard in your hearing in chapter 5. Beginning in verse 1, children were introduced to a man whose name is Naaman. A man whose name is Naaman. And he has... Leprosy, we see here, Naaman. Now, Naaman is an interesting person. He, he is the commander of the army of Syria. So he's no, no uh, meaningless figure uh, in the nation of Syria. Syria at this time really is exercising authority over the nation of Judah. And so Judah really, uh, in, a, in a number of ways, could be viewed as a vassal of the nation of Syria here. There is, as you see, some if you want to call it friendly relations with Syria, but nonetheless, uh, there doesn't appear to be hostilities at the moment. And that is why you see sort of the trigger of the king of Judah here as he receives this letter. And he immediately steps into a topic that we will look into further uh, in this story of Naaman as well as King Ahaz and others. And that is this idea of what he knew but actually wasn't true. And so, uh, so we, will, we will see that here. But let's look further at, uh, at Naaman here. Verse 1, commander of the army of Syria, he was a great man. With his master and in high favor. Obviously uh, much exalted by the king of Syria. And we see here, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria, he was a mighty man of valor. Certainly what we would expect from the commander of the army of Syria. And so we immediately step into an issue here that isn't something that uh, we can't relate to. And that is what uh, I refer to as the disadvantage of strength. Naaman has a certain disadvantage as he comes to the Lord. And uh, we should be delighted in the fact that it does appear that the Lord redeemed Naaman, but nonetheless we see here uh, the disadvantage of strength. What is it? Well, it's the inclination to consider oneself an expert in all areas because of an expertise in one area. Isn't that true? You're good at something, and so 
you take to yourself the responsibility to pontificate on everything, (laughs) and the people around you have to endure that. The inclination to a sense of entitlement and respect due to one's position. Naaman was a great man. And we see again a certain sense of entitlement as he rolls in with his entourage to Elisha's house. Further, the disadvantage of strength. The inclination not to feel the need to listen to others. I mean, why should you listen to others? You know everything, right? That's a disadvantage of strength. The inclination to take to oneself the prerogative to change things. We'll see that in King Ahaz later. But what would it be like if I came to your house and decided to rearrange your furniture? That's the disadvantage of strength. To be so arrogant as to think that I could come into your home and rearrange your furniture. Ahaz does this very thing in the temple of God. So we see again, as we look at the progress of redemption, looking here in 2 Kings, we're, we're brought face to face with the reality of a situation that all of us can in some ways understand. Um, we see a people who are offered the mercy-soaked covenant-keeping God and His words from Elisha that say, Something not unlike the Lord Jesus said, Come to me. Come to me. This is the way. Walk ye in it. And a people that have decided that they know better. That they, in fact, will manage the things of God. And we look upon them. And we should, of course, shudder. And so we see here Naaman. Now let's look at Naaman. Again, he rolls on to the, the house of Elisha here in verses 11 and 12. The Bible says, well, let's, let's look here at verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. So here's Naaman. He's the commander of the army of Syria, children. So imagine what he... What, how does he travel... Do you think? You know, I don't. I don't think that Naaman traveled in the equivalent of a smart car in those days. You know, I think that Naaman traveled in the equivalent of a chariot with horses and a security team and so forth. So he rolls into the house of Elisha. Right? He's he, there. He is right at the right at the front door. Likely, there's a gate there. All right? What do you think? What do you think Naaman expects at this point? He he steps off the chariot, right? He's got a again, he's got a security detachment with him. I mean, no telling how large that detachment is. I, I would guess fifty people, but I don't know. And so there he is standing right in front of Elisha's house. And what do you think he expects? I think he might expect Elisha to get off his chair come to the door. Right? But this would be the disadvantage of strength again. Because Elisha knows Naaman. And what does he do? He sends his servant out the door. And he tells Naaman 
to go wash in what he would consider to be the filthiest river that he can think of, the Jordan River. So Naaman received that gladly, of course. Wait, is that, is that what the Scripture says here? Uh, verse 11 actually says, Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? See, Naaman already knew how to be healed, it turns out. Right? He knew it. He had played this whole thing out in his head already. Right? Probably a hundred times. Right? Here's what's going to happen. Elisha is going to roll out of his house. He's going to be totally amazed by the entourage that I have as a commander of the Syrian army. And he's, going to, he's going to call upon the name of the Lord and there's going to be a glorious flash and then the leper will be healed. Well, that didn't happen. But what did happen is Elisha sent his servant out, right? And he said, now Elisha says, go wash in the Jordan River seven times. See ya. All right, so then he goes back in the house, right? And so here, so here's Naaman again, and what does he say? He says, oh, well, oh, okay, so this is how this works. I wash in a river. Okay, oh, I know about that too, because, because it just so happens that the rivers of Syria, the Abana and the Farfar, <laughs> are they not much cleaner than the River Jordan? Why would I not go there? Why, why, would I, why would I not go there? The Bible says that he went off in a rage. Naaman knew something. Naaman knew something that wasn't true. And he was committed to that idea of something that wasn't true. And it temporarily prevented his healing. You see, what I'm saying is, what Naaman knew that was wrong prevented him from redemption. Do you see that? Prevented him from being healed. So what further occurred in Naaman's life was again a humbling experience because our God has a number of purposes in man. And one of those distinct purposes is to humble the heart of man. Is to humble. That is one of the distinct purposes of our God. Is to humble the heart of man. And we're seeing this happen. Again, the progress of redemption. This, this idea, we, we see it written in the Proverbs, right? Pride is the great precursor to what? A fall. That's what the proverb says. But again, we see that God builds up that which He tears down. What happens next? Well, Naaman listens to the king of Syria, right? No. No, the king of Syria isn't there, so he doesn't have the king of Syria to counsel him. Naaman listens to one of his mighty commanders, right? No, no, he doesn't have a peer there to counsel him. But he does have someone that he might not be used to listening to. His servants. That's another disadvantage of strength. Is we don't listen to people that we don't think know anything. 
But his servant said this, My father, a term of respect, will you not do it? Will you not do it? Will you not wash in the Jordan River? Will you, will you not go there like the prophet of God said and wash in the Jordan River? And so it seems that Naaman's pride is melted by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes and he washes in the Jordan River and he's cleansed. reminds me of what Mary, the mother of Jesus, directed the servants to do at the wedding of Cana. It's the very first miracle that's recorded in the Gospels, shows up in the Gospel of John. So what did Mary say to the servants there? She said, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever He tells you. It seemed that Mary knew something that Naaman learned that day. That the God of Israel is Lord. He's Lord. And that we should do whatever He tells us. We should do whatever He tells us. And so, we see Naaman here recognizing that God, the God of Israel, is the one only true God. Verse 15, he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. By the way, you might recall a story where the Lord Jesus healed lepers, and they all didn't go back to see him like Naaman did. But Naaman went back. And he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is a God in all the earth, no other God but but God, the God of Israel. Now Naaman knows something that's true. He knows that there is yet but one God, and it is the God of Israel. So we could consider again the progress of redemption, not only here in the book of 2 Kings, but also in our own lives. You might ask yourself the question, what things do you know about God that aren't actually true? Perhaps you know about God that He's unforgiving. Perhaps you know about God that He's unable to assist you in growing in grace. Perhaps you know about God that keeps you from information you need to know, like Eve, that God won't save you. But these things are not true. God is a forgiving God. God is a loving Father. God is a purposeful God. God is a God who designs all of those who will be redeemed, the process by which they will be given life in Christ and hear the proclamation of the gospel in turn and be saved. That's our God.
We were mentioning in our prayer and fasting event last week a passage regarding a similar idea in 1 Samuel chapter 17. In 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 28, we have an older brother of David, Eliab. This is after David has already been anointed king of Israel. And Eliab, as David rolls onto the scene as the nation, the the army of Israel is is, uh, facing the giant Goliath and the army of the Philistines. And we see David here sent by his father rolls onto the scene and he is with Eliab, his eldest brother, verse 28, 1 Samuel 17. Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Eliab knew something that day. But what Eliab knew wasn't true. You see, he knew the heart of David. But it was false. It was an absolute lie. And Eliab had concentrated his own mental energies on what he knew of David was absolutely false. No, 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 no. David didn't come to see the battle. David came to fight the battle. David was the battle that day as none other than the representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that. What do we know that isn't true? What do we know about people that isn't true? You know enough to be slow to speak, but do you know enough to be slow to judge? Because we formulate a whole lot of ideas on something that we're very quick to do. Not unlike Eliab, not unlike Naaman. And so again, we see here, will this be to us a barrier of our redemption or a barrier of us growing in the grace of God? Naaman could have very easily left the house of Elisha that day and never been healed. But God broke down those barriers of pride and of anger. And we see step by step this progress of arrogance, rage, redemption in Naaman. Is that your story? Is that your story today? So that's the story of Naaman. Now let's consider again some more prospects here as we look at the progress of redemption in 2 Kings, and I'd like to draw your attention to chapter 12. I draw your attention to 2 Kings chapter 12, but it's important that we understand that when we look at King Joash of Judah, that we're also going to have to look at a more complete version of this man and look at 2 Chronicles chapter 24. 2 Chronicles Chapter 24. 
It's an incredible story. It's an, it's an absolutely incredible story. Joash began well. His story resembles uh, the, the storied chronicles of kings that are hidden away as babies when the royal family is killed through a treacherous crew, cared for by a courageous priest to resurface in a well-orchestrated recovery of the crown at age seven. And you want to look at me and you say, you just made that up. <laughs> I didn't make that up. The queen mother killed all of the royal family. You might not have known this, but Israel had a queen for a while. And she ruled. And she destroyed all the royal family except one. Joash. Joash was hidden. Raised by the priest Jehoiada. And so we see that Joash began very, very well. But I draw your attention to Second Chronicles chapter 24. Verse 2, the Bible says in Second Chronicles 24, verse 2, Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I would like to say full stop here. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible goes on to say that Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. What happened then? Well, you can read for yourself there. In 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 17, After the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. The king listened to them. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them, again, the voice of God to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them. But they would not pay attention. Verse 20, Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest. Then he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, He has forsaken you. But they conspired against Him, and by command of the king they stoned Him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Who is this Zechariah guy? Well, he was the son of Jehoiada the priest. And he also, apparently, was a faithful man, one who proclaimed the word of God. The son of that man who led Joash to do the right thing. The Bible has one description about Zechariah. What does it say? Oh, it just says that he was clothed with the Spirit of God. Clothed with the Spirit of God? And what does Joash do? Well, he doesn't merely squirm in his seat because he wants to continue in his evil plan. He calls for Zechariah to be killed, and so that's what happens. And so we see here one of the aspects 
that we see here in Joash is that Joash was, as Richard Owen Roberts says, a leaner. He was a leaner. Now, what do I mean by that? What does Roberts mean by that? He means that Joash was leaning on Jehoiada and didn't have a faith of his own. That he, in fact, could not say, as Moses said in Exodus chapter 15, verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Now, the point in this passage in Exodus chapter 15, verse 2, isn't so that we can see the narcissistic process of the pronouns me and my, but it's so we can recognize that Moses had a faith that was given to him by God. He was no leaner. He wasn't leaning on anyone but God. And so, children, that's a question for us. Yes, are we worshiping our Father's God, the faithful God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Have we been born again? Are we walking with Christ? Is our faith a living faith of our own? This is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Now, let's look further in the book of 2 Kings into chapter 16. Chapter 16 of 2 Kings. So we have a new king in Judah. His name is Ahaz. The one phrase... Summary of his life, verse 2, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God as his father David had done. And so what we see here is that Judah is about to be sacked by Syria, Israel. And so what does Ahaz do? Verse 7, well, he cries out to God. No, actually, he doesn't. He doesn't do that. He goes to Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria. And he says this, verse 7, I am your servant and your son. Oh. I thought the king of Judah was to be the servant of God and the son of God. No. No. Not Ahaz. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. You listen to a guy with gold and silver. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus, took it, carrying its people captive to Kerr, and he killed Rezin. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw that the altar that was at Damascus, he saw the altar there. And the king Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern 
exact in all its details. Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. Verse 14, the bronze altar that was before the Lord he removed from the front of the house from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord and put it on the north side of his altar. King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, verse 15, saying, On the great altar burn the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering and the king's burnt offering. In modern evangelicalism, we would call that deconstruction. And we're witnessing that today, as a matter of fact. We see it, we see it in King Ahaz. Or what does King Ahaz do? Well, let's think back to the temple. Now, the temple is a picture of what? It's a picture of heaven. The temple is a picture of heaven. The temple was designed in heaven. But what does Ahaz do? Well, he decides that he is attracted to the altar of a pagan god in Assyria. And so he decides that he wants to have his priest, Uriah, design for him an altar that looks just like that one that Tiglath-Pileser had in Assyria. And he wants to displace the altar in the temple and place this one in its place and then offer the burnt offering on this new altar. And you say, well, I, I can't conceive of, of the arrogance and the pride involved in this sort of thing. Well, friends, we, we are witnessing this in the church today. You say, well, how? Well, well, we have a repentance that doesn't include changing in evangelicalism today. We no longer have the Lord's Day. We have weekend services. Or only a morning service. Marriage is any meaningful relationship. Pastors or women. Preaching is psychobabble to convince guilty sinners their guilt is not real. Forgiveness is unnecessary. Why is that? Well, because there's no such thing as sin. Raising children is now better without the rod. That's called deconstruction. Deconstruction. And reconstructing a new way that fits who we are. And Leonard Ravenhill said it best. He said, we don't need a new definition of Christianity. We need a new demonstration of Christianity. We don't need a new definition of Christianity. But we need a new demonstration of Christianity. This is the way. Walk ye in it. Now I draw your attention to chapter 17. Verse 13. We see here that Israel and Judah served idols. Verse 12, the Lord said, you shall not do this. Verse 13, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer 
saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Verse 14. But they would not listen. They wouldn't listen. You say, well, okay, I mean, I, I didn't listen the one time. No, it's not described like that in the Bible. The more clear description is in verse 15. They despised His statutes and it's His covenant. And you say, well, when I sinned against the Lord that time, I, I wasn't despising His law. But the Bible describes our sin not only as the event, but it's who we are. We, we commend ourselves as those who confess of an individual's sin, we should confess of our sins and repent of them. But what are we doing about our character? The fact that, that God describes us as people who despise the Word of God. If we're not walking in His ways. After David's situation with Bathsheba and Uriah, Nathan said to David, Why have you despised the Word of the Lord? He didn't say, why have you murdered and committed adultery? Are we not like that? We oversell ourselves in this culture and we undersell our sins, right? No, no, I just, I just did this. I, I just did that. But you see, Nathan gets right to the heart of the matter. And because David is a man after God's own heart, a repenter, David says, yes, I'm the man. I've despised the Word of God. Oh God, please, please help me. And so, this one, who of course in human flesh would come after David, calls us to come. Sinners, liars, adulterers, those who turn away from God, poor and needy, come to Christ whose arms are open wide. Come to Christ without money. He will save you. He will save you. That's the same thing that Elisha was saying and those prophets that came after him and before him as well. Would you walk in this way? A merciful and loving Father in heaven. Let us pray.